Hello and welcome to our podcast. Uh, each month, uh, we interview thought leaders in intellectual property, talking about how they were introduced to this area of law, their careers, the legal and commercial issues their industries face, and what the future may hold. The podcast is brought to you by the talented team at Lewis Silken, a British and Irish law firm specialising in the prosecution, transaction and litigation of all intellectual property rights in all technologies and in all sectors. I'm Anthony Craggs, a partner at Lewis Silken. Uh, today I'm speaking with Will Bowes, uh, General Counsel at Condé Nast, about the issues uh, which the publishing industry faces. Will has had a uh, stellar career, having worked at Penguin, Informer and the Cambridge University Press, where he was appointed General Counsel at the tender PQE of seven years. Subsequently, being named as one of the lawyer's hot 100 uh, for the year. From there, he took on a role at the Publishers Association, the representative body for publishers, before taking his current role at Condé Nast. As always, uh, the thoughts and views expressed in the podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and not uh, the organisations for which they work. Will, uh, welcome uh, to the podcast. Uh, We're delighted to have you here. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here. Um, let's take a step back uh, to where it all began. Uh, when did you first learn about intellectual property? So um, when I was younger, I, I did a lot of music and I was involved in a couple of professional um, ensembles. And of course, in in rehearsing and performing music, what we really needed access to was sheet music. Uh, well before the days of digital um, and, and print music was, was really our lifeline. It was how we learnt music, how we rehearsed, um, how we practice and our key performing tool. Um, and um, uh, I remember that um, the sheet music we used would often have um, notices at the bottom of each page, not just regular copyright notices, but also these sort of little warnings that would say, um, um, don't photocopy music and um, and if you photocopy music, um, you are not being fair to other creators. And this would kind of build as a kind of copyright crescendo where these page by page warnings of the impact of photocopying would, uh, um, would, 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 be, you know, would end in a message such as don't photocopy and, and be fair to creators. And, and, uh, and I, and I asked, um, older people that I was performing with, you know, what this was and what this all meant. And, and it was explained to me that, um, um, you know, the reason we couldn't as a professional ensemble be seen to be using photocopies was that we were all part of a creative value chain and we all had skills and things that we brought to the party and the people who created and wrote and annotated and published the sheet music upon which we relied needed, needed to earn their living and be paid for what they did, just as we did as performers. And therefore, if we um, um, stole um, their livelihood, then then how could we complain about other people um, not remunerating us for hours? And this ecosystem that we are all part of, it was vital to support each other um, in what we did. So a long way away at that age of really understanding what copyright was, an awareness of this economic value chain and that we all had a part to play was, was very much something that was really in my mind. Mm-hmm. And how did you first get involved in the publishing industry? So uh, again, when I was younger, my, my father owned a bookshop, and um, uh, and so books were very much part of of, of our life and our home. Um, he also, in in the in the search for for uh, uh, publishing things that um, that would sell and that and that no one no one else would have, he also decided to to, to do some of his own publishing 
and to publish um, local history books and books of interest that um, that people in our area would want to buy. So he um, would get involved in publishing and editing books, and we would have authors in our home, and uh, be familiar with that. With, became familiar at that age with that process, and then as I got older, I'd do some work for him and, and get to understand that 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 book ecosystem, and and a love of reading of all kinds, and and you know whether that be at school or through newspapers or magazines or or, or reading for pleasure, that was something that was very much part of of of, of my childhood, and then. I had that insight into how then the book ecosystem in particular operated. So we've got uh, an interest in music, uh, then a, uh, an interest in uh, reading. And, and how, what is it specifically about the industry today uh, that interests you? Well, I became fascinated by, by digital technology so everything that I loved and learned and enjoyed, and whether that be through my schoolwork or my studies or through, or things that, that I enjoy doing in my spare time, was very much impacted and upended by the advent of digital and the creation of the internet. You know, my ability to read and listen and watch and consume content, whether that be music for school, reading for pleasure, newspapers uh, or sport, was was completely transformed from from a linear, more difficult process to suddenly something that one had access to um, at all times in, in new ways and in, 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 in different ways. And 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 I felt very keenly that that this was a challenge to 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 the world economically, societally, um, uh, technologically, but also commercially. And the, and the business model again, thinking back to when I'd been performing as a younger age. Um, you know, as I started going through university and, and, the, and the internet and, 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 and the technology developed and you went through the, the issues with Napster in, in the late 90s and then how those business models were evolving. How could creators and musicians and, and writers and authors get paid? What would the business model be? How could they have their rights and their works protected? It, it felt to me to be a very profound shift. And, and whatever angle I looked at it from, it was replete with interesting challenges and conundrums and debates that needed to be had and arguments that needed to be solved, problems that needed to be fixed and new things that need to be created. And um, as I then began to study law, that was fascinating to me. So uh, you started to study law and then you uh, went to train uh, Rag & Co's intellectual property practice. Yeah. Um, and then you moved uh, sort of at an early stage uh, in your career to Penguin. Uh, yeah. What was that experience like? Oh, an, an amazing business. I mean, to go from a law firm into a creative business like Penguin was 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 transformational. Uh, I I had been lucky to do a secondment when I was at Rag and Co and had a sense of what in house legal was like, and I found the proximity to creative people and business decision makers um, fascinating. And and you know, again, they were creating these new business models for the future, and I wanted to be as close to that as possible. Penguin's an amazing business. It, obviously, long before its merger with Random House, but um, uh, it was it was full of creative people, passionate about what they did, um, loving the process of bringing stories to life, experimenting with new models, looking at new ways of licensing, um, and um, and and trying to trying to find new ways to to tell stories um, um, and 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 share content with their readers. And how was uh, Penguin and the industry in, uh, in general at that stage, 2006, responding to the challenges uh, that you've mentioned? 
it seems such a long time ago now. Um, it felt very cutting edge at the time, but of course, you know, these are eras well before um, you know the iPad or the technologies we have or the platforms that we have now, and and a very different um, era. Uh, Penguin was diversifying into lots of licensing, and so. I was there shortly after the um, the Beatrix Potter film came out, and they had a big licensing portfolio there around some of their children's brands. Um, so that was something they were looking to do in terms of diversification. But on the more traditional publishing side, again, they were they were they were looking at doing audiobooks, Penguin Audio, and and ebooks, which were in their early stages then in terms of what an ebook was and whether it was just a flat PDF or whether it could be something that was more more interactive. Um, um, so. It, as I said, it felt like we were doing quite innovative things at the time, but I suppose you look back 15 years and you see that the, the, the type of publishing then was, was, was a long way from, from what one is able, able to do now. But, but also, you know, trying to think through um, copyrights and how to, how to invest in those and, 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 you know, a publishing world that had been very much dominated by territorial rights and owning books for in one format in one market and another publisher would own the books in another format in another market. That as a business model, you could see had only so much longevity in a world where content was ubiquitous and was, was flying across borders in ways that never been done before. So you touched on uh, copyright there. Has yeah. the law kept up with the, the changes uh, in the technology and uh, the industry, uh, or do you see that there's need for reform? I've thought, always thought that that um, the core things that copyright is trying to achieve, which is to, if you, you know, if you go right back to to 1709 and 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 the actually encouragement of learning, that that core purpose of copyright, I think, still resonates very well today. If you look at what they were trying to achieve, which was um, um, you know, firstly, to, to, to liberate content from ownership by the state. So to create the ability for authors to write and, and earn a living, to the creation of that economic value chain, a privately ownable right that could be transferred between different actors in a chain to get a book from an author to a reader. Um, that's an incredibly important thing. And, and we talk about the importance of free speech rightly nowadays, but, but it was copyright that first enabled that. Um, so that's a very important thing. I think also um, what copyright was trying to do was also try to create mechanisms to ensure quality maintenance and also to ensure accountability for what was written and what was published. And again, if you look at the debates of today and all the issues we have around online content, you can see that as as people have respected copyright less and as that has become um, um, that, 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 that ubiquity of content and, and perhaps um, people asking for permission less than the, than the copyright would expect them to do. You can see some of those challenges around quality, maintenance and control, and you can see the impact on society of a society full of content that is not necessarily of the highest quality and for which people who publish it can can avoid accountability for doing things that, that harm individuals or harm society or, or are unfair mm-hmm. to rights owners. So I think, I guess in answer to your question, copyrights, the concept of copyright and its core purpose feels more relevant to me than ever. And you're starting to see the impact of a world where people have not respected copyright several years after um, digital changes made, uh, uh, regulatory changes made that possible. Um, all that said, can copyright be um, um, improved? Yes, of course it can. And um, um, and all regulation can be improved. But uh, I, 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 I think... Um, uh, 
it does need to be developed. It needs to take effect for some some digital realities. I think you can look at some concepts such as the term of protection, um, and um, and think about how does a term of protection, life of author plus seventy years, as a time frame, fit with the immediacy and the speed with which the digital market operates. You know, something a child writes today can be protectable well into the twenty second century, and yet. Mm-hmm. We just we live in a world of immediacy and speed and content coming and going within seconds. So I think you need to think about we need we need to think about whether that that term of protection, for example, fits a digital reality. I also think mm-hmm. if you look at another key concept of copyright around the fact that, that, that particularly from an, from an author's right, moral rights tradition, you know you have a you have it's an unregistered right, whereas you're working in a digital ecosystem that is that is rightly and 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 and. and very many ways obsessed with data and having provability of ownership and traceability and automated systems that can that can use data to make automated decisions that doesn't sit well with something that's hard to define not registered um you know uh, undefinable so the core concept from a public policy purpose of copyright feels more relevant than ever some of the ways in which it's been allowed to be created and defined and exist are are at odds with some of the norms and mechanisms of a digital environment and i think those can bring it into question which Mm -hmm. then people who actually would rather not work within the policy framework of copyright because it doesn't suit their perspective or their model then use those failures on the process to undermine the policy objective that copyright is trying to achieve which as we now see creates a worse society and a worse ecosystem for everyone Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And just looking at the purely practical, where there is, uh, where there are regimes uh, for copyright registration, uh, do you use those as, as a business, or is it, or is yeah. copyright too transient to, in, to make them worthwhile? Uh, uh, where, 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 where that, where it's applicable, it's used, but, but, mm-hmm. but. But the ecosystem at large is based on the concept of a right that's unregisterable and is defined by rights written in contracts that themselves mm-hmm. can not always be, you know, if you compare the wording of a subsidiary rights clause in an author contract with, for example, the complete clarity of a registered trademark in a well-defined global system, you know, one can lead itself quite easily to a notice and takedown policy, another one can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so you've had success in building a legal function from scratch at Cambridge University Press and at uh, Condé Nast. Um, how do you build a legal team uh, to address the issues uh, that the publishing industry is facing? It's a good question. Um, I think it all starts from a, a deep understanding of the industry and the business model that you're um, seeking to to lawyer, if I can if I can put it that way, um, and um, you need to spend a bit of time assessing where they currently are, the places in which legal issues really intersect with what's strategically critical to that particular business. Um, and, and you need to have supportive leaders and managers, which I've always been very fortunate to have. And you need to have clarity with them on your budget and their appetite for risk. So if you take that strategic understanding, personal support, 
clarity on budget and appetite for risk, you can start then recommending structures and processes um, for a legal function that is capable of, of, of addressing what they need. Um, but at this particular moment in time, it is difficult because um, not only are you trying to shift from print to digital, which creates different kinds of legal problems and legal challenges. So for example, um, data privacy and, and use of data is, is really, really critical to, to any modern digital consumer focused business now. So you've got to combine that with, with core intellectual property rights and, and, and make sure you can address both. Um, but you've also got a world that is increasingly globally integrated. Um, and so, you know, doing business across borders is inherently more complex than in any one jurisdiction. So you need to find a way of building a team that can manage the complexity and friction that comes with cross-border trade. And particularly if you think over the last five years, you know, five years ago, we may have assumed that the law was going in a, in a, in a, in a straight line towards more integration and being more global convergence. Um, well, whatever Brexit may or may not mean for the UK in the years and decades to come, what it certainly is, is a definable moment where international law stopped converging and started diverging, mm -hmm. at least with respect to the relationships between the UK and the European Union. And, and you know, that that is a big moment in, in, in terms of thinking about, about this. And, and uh, it's the first moment, but, the, but it will probably be the first of others. And so you have to start at the very moment business models are converging globally, you've now got to start potentially dealing with a world where the global legal system might not be inexorably converging as well. And therefore you've got to try and create, support a global business model whilst also allowing for national variation, continuing to allow for national variations in law, possibly more than we thought was always going to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and then, what, so you've got your sense of, of, of your strategy and your, and your, and your, and your budgets and, and your risks, and then, you start finding what are the right combinations of solutions to that. In some cases, it's an in-house lawyer. In some cases, it's an expert law firm. In some cases, it's a template contract. In other cases, it's an automated process. Um, but in other cases, it's also just being really clear about what you're doing versus what your HR team's doing versus what your finance team's doing um, and being really clear about roles and responsibilities and, and how issues that can be solved by multiple different teams can be done as effectively as possible. And also increasingly, I should say, I think one other really key thing for us nowadays is reputational risk. So being working really closely with your communications teams, I think, is something that all in-house lawyers need to need to learn to do and anticipate that kind of, of issue as well. Mm -hmm. So you touched on specialist uh, lawyers. What do you look for in external legal providers? People who can help me solve issues rather than just process documents. I think that's something that in-house lawyers need to focus much more on than in the past. And, and they do that by having true expertise um, within, within a, a combination of the technical discipline and an understanding of the sector. So, you know, can I have a strategic conversation with an external lawyer about my business model? Will they instantly get that? Can they, can they tell me not just about, um, you know, the use of cookies under the privacy directive, but talk about what that means in the context of being a publisher and, 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 and how other people in that sector are addressing a similar challenge. Something that really makes a difference, you know, that's, 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 that's the key. Um, uh, that's the key for me in, in, in any outside counsel appointment. So playing devil's advocate slightly, one, in, one issue that 
external counsel often have is that to build that level of sector expertise and to advise commercially, it does mean working for more than one uh, company within the industry. Mm -hmm. And often companies within in specific industries will uh, ask you not to do that uh, because of the potential of, of conflicts, whether professional or, or commercial. Um, where do you sit with that? I think the the sorts of issues we're addressing now have a very broad reach across narrow publishing, but also wider adjacent sectors. So, for example, you know, um, the likelihood of a major conflict between a book and a magazine publisher feels low to me, possibly on mm -hmm. a particular issue, but you could still learn an awful lot from from a cousin in, a, in an adjacent sector. Um, mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of scope for work to be done in, in, in similar places without a conflict arising. But what would really matter to me is what side of the line and what side of the argument you're on. I would find it hard to work with an outside council that was actively lobbying for, you know, weaker intellectual property rights, or or trying to um, uh, or trying to take an opposite view to us, for example, in a, in, a, in a relevant antitrust um, uh, inquiry. That that yeah. I think would be very hard because I want to feel that they're philosophically aligned with where I want to go. Yeah. Um, um, and that's where I think the real conflicts can emerge obviously matter by matter issue issue by issue things might emerge but but to your point about a general kind of systemic conflict i would be wanting to see what side of the argument they're on and where their instincts are because so many of these issues are unsolved and i think having lawyers who are attuned to your thinking and wanting to find solutions alongside along the lines that you're arguing is really important and how do you test for that or, or vet for that in any instructional selection process? You ask them what their views are. Um, yeah. you, know, you might ask them where they, where they, where they came out on a, you know, on the recent, uh, what advice they've given their clients on, you know, copyright exhaustion, something, something really philosophical like that. You know, what advice are they doing mm -hmm. on, on antitrust inquiries at the moment? Um, you know, the, you, you can, you can, you can ask them about some, some, some hot button issues that are important to you and you quickly get a feel for, what their instinctive answers to those issues are. Yeah. So uh, moving away uh, from external lawyers, how has COVID-19 impacted the publishing industry? Well, I think, I think, if I may answer the question as a lawyer first, rather than as the industry, um, it has brought a whole new dynamic to the life of an in-house lawyer. And I feel very sure that for most of the rest of my career, issues around health and well-being and public health are going to be a key risk factor for us to manage. Um, you know, the priority, of course, of making sure everyone is, is, is well and, and safe at work is, is paramount. Um, but also how you get the balance right between, um, um, between different... Um, uh, competing factors, so to speak, um, is also, um, so, you know, you know, to keep your business operating in a, in a, in a functional and operation efficient way is critical. So, you know, if you were, if one was overly cautious, then that would, that, you know, every, every day you have to have restrictions in place as an operational impact. And so you're trying to keep those things in balance as much as you can. Um, mm -hmm. I think also when we've got, you know, countries all over the world, you know, the status of COVID at any one time is completely different from one market to another. 
Mm-hmm. So we need to manage that. So you, you mentioned that from a, a legal perspective, do, do you have a, a sort of wider view as to how COVID-19 has impacted the publishing industry commercially? So, so it depends on, um, um, I mean, obviously, obviously it's an obvious thing to say that, um, um, that obviously digital products have, have, have been very popular during, during the pandemic. So digital products and services done very well. Equally, I know many people in the book publishing space who say that book sales have been very good because of what's going on. Um, people are obviously at home and, and reading more and that's been positive. Um, and then if you think about the entertainment space, you know, there have been some difficulties with carrying, carrying on with production activities. So that's been hard too. Um, but, um, but, but you know, people want to be entertained and people want to be informed, and so it, 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 we're doing our job well. The, the the demand for what we do is still there. So, Will, you, you've touched on uh, legal reform. What are the main legal issues uh, which the publishing industry is facing at the minute? Well, so um, exhaustion of rights has been a key issue for us in recent times because. It really goes to that question of when and how can intellectual property be used um, and in, in particular used online. So questions around digital exhaustion and how far and for how long and how far down a digital supply chain can someone enforce their rights and control the way their content is used in the way that they always used to be able to do. That did come up in the course of Brexit, of course, and, and as we know, there's been a recommendation from the government recently in the UK around how to um, uh, fudge that issue for the time being and I guess we'll see how that plays out in that narrow Brexit con- context but what's more interesting for me is 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 the wider context around digital exhaustion and 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 that use of rights um, in, in a digital space and indeed how digital market regulation is evolving in general if if I take a step away from my intellectual property just for a, a minute Obviously, the new European packages around the Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act are really interesting and relevant for us. Um, Coming off the back of the Digital Single Market um, and the Copyright Directive, and again, slightly further back GDPR, you're seeing a new generation of of digital legal norms being established by the European Union, um, both as a, um, you know, they're interested from a market perspective, but also from a political perspective, these are really big priorities for them. So... We're starting to this move towards you know, ex ante regulation and more prescriptive means for regulating how those markets work is is going to have a huge impact on on digital advertising and, and digital content use. Um, but the other trend for me that's interesting from more of a purely IP angle is is what's going on uh, with NFT and the metaverse and Web three, um, and we're obviously looking at that very closely at the moment. We're seeing a lot of use of our our brands and our content in that space. Um, a lot of it's unauthorized, and we're working really closely with our business teams to develop our strategy in that area and think think afresh about what intellectual property rights we need um, and how we can enforce those, and also how we can upskill and educate a, a, a new generation of digital leaders to understand the intellectual property framework and apply that to the businesses and the business models that they're now generating. Yeah, because we've we've touched on this um, offline, but it it seems that with every technological shift, um, there is uh, a some pioneers who advance that technology um, almost removed of intellectual property Absolutely. rights, and then it, it is incumbent upon rights holders to remind them that those 
boundaries exist irrespective of of, of the technology and you always think about music and napster Absolutely. and the systematic infringement that that took place and there needed to be um an assertion of rights, but then also, as you say, a period of education. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, we, t- we talked before, like going all the way back into history, since the Industrial Revolution, governments and, and societies have developed intellectual property rights to try and regulate marketplaces around the sharing of, of information and content. And you start with books and newspapers moving through um, through the you know gramophone and the early music cases and the development of music rights and then film and TV and then technology and other uh, uh, rights in the 20th century. So then you then when in the you know in the early years of the internet those questions around how you regulate and, and deal with streaming services such as Napster and then you move through into uh, the evolution of Google and the AdWords cases um, uh, at that moment in time in terms of is that trademark use is that not trademark use what's allowed what's not allowed. Um, and then Google's use of fair use to to scan large tracts of information and build their own information repositories. Is that fair use? Contrast between US fair use, European fair dealing type norms. You have to go through this litigation and this regulatory reform to to mm-hmm. to, 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 to get the intellectual property rights to work. But as you say, what is a fact is that those laws do exist and they do apply. And people mm-hmm. who are creating those new marketplaces and those new spaces often think they found a way to avoid the law and be in a place where there is no law, mm-hmm. but, but they haven't found those places. They're just in places where the law has not yet been applied and will be applied, whether through litigation or through regulation um, in, in, in the fullness of time. So I'm going back and helping people understand how copyright and, and trademark law works is a really helpful founding for them in understanding where the market opportunity might be. Where can they enforce? Where can they not enforce? Um, how does licensing work? You know, what is an NFT from an intellectual property perspective? Does someone own the intellectual property in it? How can that be licensed? What should yeah. what should you do as a as a creative business in that space? And 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 um, and it's really exciting area of law, exciting area of business, but an exciting space in which intellectual property lawyers can make a difference and really help people. Just uh, returning to the EU uh, regulatory approach and the DMA and. Uh, other um, innovations, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. To what extent, as an international business, do you find that the EU is leading in these areas and that um, as an international business, you have to follow, irrespective of jurisdiction, what the EU is doing? Yeah. So one of the interesting get things in my role, I'm a general counsel of a US company, but based um, in Europe, um, no longer based in the EU, but based in Europe. And so very much um uh living and breathing a us um led business every day but also experiencing um at close quarters the development of regulatory um um uh, uh changes in, in in europe i think definitely um us colleagues are really interested in in what europe is doing and you can see gdpr for example coming in in some statewide legislation in the mm-hmm. us at the moment and influencing that obviously california most particularly whether the U.S. will get to federal privacy regulation is is another question, but but there is definitely a huge amount of interest in the U.S. with my U.S. colleagues, but also U.S. trade associations that we're members of, asking about the EU regulatory approach. Where's it going? Trying to influence that, trying to understand what this might mean um, for their for their businesses um, in, in in Europe. So, I think my experience from working with people outside of Europe is that they do perceive the EU to be a leader in digital regulation and to be setting norms 
Um, yeah. I don't necessarily always agree with those. I think there are, you know, this concept of data privacy as is, is a quasi-human right doesn't sit very well in a US context. People think of it in a much more commercial, pragmatic way. So there's a lot of time spent helping people understand where that's coming from. And um, um, uh, and and as the DMA and the DSA come into force and start being implemented, I dare say some of those similar kinds of questions will arise. But for sure, there is a lot of di discussion in the US around how to regulate big technology companies. And they are very much looking at what the EU are doing and evaluating how that might work and real interest in that area. Yeah. Oh, good start. Okay. And then uh, just looking at uh, those that are entering uh, a legal career and they're interested in publishing, uh, whether or not working as an external lawyer or in-house, uh, do you have any recommendations uh, for how they should do that? Uh, uh, you know, being in-house, being in I find fantastic in terms of it being strategic and, and interesting and um and being part of building, you know, great digital businesses, um, uh, uh, but but being in private practice, you you know, you get that real expertise in being involved in in, in cutting edge legal issues as well. So I think it's it's about a combination of the two. Um, but I think being clear about what interests you and, and what would drive you and enable you to 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 do the most interesting legal work that will give you motivation and energy um, 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 in the way that you want to go. And and that's always what I've used to try and drive my work and and for me that has been being close to one sector learning it really well and trying to help people make a difference that's great so will thank you so much uh for taking the time uh as ever uh you have been eloquent uh and uh, uh very insightful um it's really appreciated uh and uh, uh wish you all the best for the future thank you auntie good to speak to you